This is part two of our episode covering the 1897-98 tour by England. Part one was released last week and covers the first two tests of the five test series. We resume with the series locked at 1-1. Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 2, 1897-98 vs England. Don't worry, darling. The Test Series would move to Adelaide for the third match. Surprisingly, the major outcome of Jones being no-balled in the previous Test was that the selectors decided to drop McKibben. McKibben's action had often been called into question, most notably by Fred Spotheth in his newspaper column, and there was a concern that he would be the next to be called. This ended his short Test career whilst he only played one further season of first-class cricket before retiring at age 29. He was replaced in the test side by New South Welshman Howe, who would impress earlier in the season. Stoddart had finally recovered enough from his grief to take his place as captain of the English side, and he replaced Wainwright. On a perfect day for cricket, Trot was again successful at the toss and chose to bat on another excellent strip. McLeod and Darling opened for the Australians, facing the bowling of Richardson and Briggs. Both batsmen started confidently, although McLeod was happy to play second fiddle to the efforts of Darling. Darling's first four scoring shots were all boundaries off Richardson. He followed this up with a shot into the crowd off Briggs for five. By the time the bowling change was made for Richardson to Hearn, Darling had already 40 out of 56 scored. He brought up his half-century shortly afterwards with two off Hurst, who had replaced Briggs. Lunch was then taken, with the Australians having moved to 70. Shortly after lunch, McLeod, who had made his way to 21, hit a simple chance to Ranji a point. Surprisingly, the Indian Prince dropped the catch. McLeod took advantage, starting to up his scoring rate with a cut for four off Hurst. However, once he reached 31, he was bowled by the returning Briggs. The opening partnership put on 87 as Hill came to the crease to join his fellow South Australian. Darling was not slow by McLeod's dismissal, bringing up the team 100 with a cut to the boundary, then hit Briggs to the same point in the crowd that he had done before lunch for five. He received some luck on 86 when he hit a high ball into the outfield that just evaded the fielder's hands. More luck came on 98, when he hit a ball hard to Ranji at point, who again dropped a catch. To rub salt in the wound, Darling brought up his 100 in style, hitting Briggs clear out of the Adelaide Oval. This was the first ever six in Test cricket, and it wouldn't be until 1910 that all hits over the boundary, not just those that cleared the entire ground, would be classed as six. The home crowd roared their approval, whilst the English also applauded to acknowledge Darling's achievement. The score was now racing past 150, with Hill accumulating runs in an unfussed way. Darling survived a close LBW shout at 106. Afterwards, Hill found the boundary with frequency, hitting Mason for successive boundaries whilst also driving Hayward for the same result. As team came around, the Australians had moved to 195, with Darling on 117 and Hill 45. After tea, Hill brought up his 50 and the team 200 with the same stroke. Numerous off-drives to the boundary from the younger man brought enthusiastic applause from the crowd. Hill scored at a run a minute in the 35 minutes post tea, dominating the partnership. He'd moved to 80 when his off-drive, which had been so valuable for him this day, failed him, leading him to edge behind off Richardson. His 81 had been made in 98 minutes and included seven fours, sharing a 148-run partnership with Darling. Darling was then joined by Gregory at 2 for 245. Having been quiet since tea, Darling now exploded. He took Briggs to 30 runs in three overs, whilst Richardson and Hearn also came in for punishment. As the day wound down, Darling would pass 150, 
and eventually when stumps were drawn, he would be 178 not out, out of a total of 309. With only two wickets down, Australia were in the same dominant position as in the previous test in Melbourne. The Saturday saw the biggest crowd to attend a cricket match in Adelaide, with 18,000 arriving to watch their hometown hero continue his innings. Sadly for the crowd, Darling was out in the first over to Richardson without adding to his overnight score. His 178 had taken up almost five hours, included a trademark 26 fours, two fives, and one massive six. Gregory, who had ended the previous day on 16, was now joined by Iredell. Briggs, who had started with four maidens, should have been rewarded when Gregory drove a ball in the air to mid-off. However, his captain, Stoddart, dropped a simple chance. The play in the first hour was very sedate, with only 40 runs coming. Gregory made his way slowly to his 50 before he edged one off Hurst through to the keeper. Lunch was taken immediately following, the Australians having made their way to 4th 374, with Iredale not out on 25. New batsman Trot struggled after lunch, playing missing in a number of deliveries before he was bowled by Hearn for three. This dismissal saw Noble come to the crease to join Iredale. The two batted cautiously in the face of tight bowling for a while, but once the 400 was brought up, the two batsmen began to open their shoulders. Iredale soon afterwards passed 50 with the unknown drive. Noble, who had looked cramped and uncomfortable in getting to 20, now found more confidence, stepping out to drive Briggs while also playing many fine late cuts. He moved his score on to 39 when Stoddart returned to his fast bowler Richardson. The change had an immediate impact, with Noble's off stump being disturbed. He'd shared an 85-run partnership with Iredale and taken the score on to 6 for 474, with T being taken upon the fall of his wicket. Trumbull was a new batsman after the break, joining Iredale who moved to 80 soon after the resumption with a drive for four off Briggs. However, he couldn't go on to a century. He blocked a delivery from Richardson, but the ball had the misfortune of rolling back onto his sumps. His 84 had included eight boundaries and been made in just over three overs. Kelly replaced him. Another period of slow scoring ensued, but enough was done to move the score past 500. From here, the scoring rate increased. Kelly played some strong off drives, finding the boundary. Having already used seven bowlers, including the wicketkeeper, Stoddart turned to himself to break the partnership. Kelly tried to take advantage by launching into a big drive, but missed to be bowled for 22. New man Jones held out with Trumbull, who had moved into the 30s with some sedate batting, but got a rush of blood in the last over. He attempted a run, but was sent back by his partner, where he was caught short of his ground. This ended the play for the day, with the Australians on a mammoth 9 for 552. The third day dawned with no sign of a declaration. With the weather forecast to be good and the test to be a timeless one, played to conclusion, there was no urgency to send the English in. Trumbull, 32 not out, was joined by the debutant Howe. Any thoughts of wrapping up the Ings without any more damage for the English were dashed as Howe hit the first ball of the day from Richardson to fine league for four. He ended up taking 11 runs off the first over. Trumbull also found the boundary, whilst Howe hit another one off Hearn, taking the score to 573. Howe's cameo of 16 runs in seven minutes was then ended when he was bowled by Hearn, ending the innings. It was the second highest team score in test matches to this point. Trumbull remained 37 not out. Richardson was the pick of the bowlers, having taken four wickets, but needed 56 overs and conceded 164 runs in doing so. On a stifling hot day, McLaren and Mason commenced for the English, whilst Newman Howe opened with local hero Jones. There was still pace and bounce on the pitch, with both bowlers getting lift and striking their opposition on the body. The runs came in singles, with 20 being made in 30 minutes of batting. Just as a batsman felt set, Jones caught Mason in two minds as to whether to play forward or back and clipped his off bail. Ranji joined McLaren at 24. As the two best batsmen in the English side, a lot was expected of them. However, they couldn't perform on this occasion. Ranji survived a close chance as an edge pass between keeper and slip. Just before lunch was to be taken, Trumbull was given over in place of Jones. This proved successful, with the off-spinner causing Ranji to hit a leading edge to mid-on, where Noble took a simple chance. 
he was dismissed for six, leaving the English at two for 30 as lunch was taken. McLaren didn't last long after lunch, becoming Howe's first test wicket when he was bowled for 14. Howe then doubled up by dismissing Storer for four. This left the English at four for 42. Here, Hayward was joined by Druce. Hayward came down the pitch to Trumbull and missed the ball, only for Kelly to fumble the stumping opportunity. The two batsmen then settled in and built a partnership, although there were a couple of close calls with the running. The first boundary of the innings didn't come until there were 70 on the board, with an off drive from Hayward, who followed up next ball with a boundary to square leg. Another boundary off house saw Hayward's score move into the 30s. Eventually, the 100 was brought up after over two hours of batting. This saw Trot turn to Noble, who was successful in his second over, having Drews caught by Darling for 24, having put on 64 with Hayward. New batsman Hurst managed a single before T was taken, with the score now at 5 for 107. Resuming after T, Hurst required a runner due to an injury sustained the previous day. Hayward brought up his 50 with a leg glance to three, whilst Hurst put away a full toss from Noble, who was struggling due to the heat, to the boundary. The two batsmen continued mostly in signals from this point, bringing up the team 150. Trot then tried himself, but Hurst put his first ball away to the boundary. With the score having moved on to 172, Hayward, who had moved on to 70, misjudged a line of the ball and was bowled by Jones. Stoddart replaced him. Hurst then managed to injure his runner, smacking a ball from Jones into his ankle, requiring him to be replaced. Another hit in the same direction generated a boundary, taking Hurst into the 40s. Trumbull was tried again late in the day, but Hurst struck him for boundaries in successive overs, bringing up his maiden test 50. He ended the day on that score, with Sodder on 11. The English score of 6 for 197 was still a hefty 376 runs behind the Australian's effort. A dust storm threatened to delay the start of play on the fourth day, but cleared in time for Hurst and Stoddart to resume at midday. They started well, taking seven off Noble's first over. Stoddart was in the mood to attack, slashing a ball outside the off stump before lashing an off drive straight to Jones, who took a difficult catch. With Stoddart out for 15, he was replaced by Briggs. He played in a similar fashion to his captain, attempting to score off almost every ball. He was nearly caught out twice, but was also struck successive boundaries off Noble. Eventually, though, his cavalier play saw the end of him, with Noble getting his revenge, having him caught behind for 15. Howell then bowled new batsman Hearn for a duck in the next over, leaving the English at 9 for 224. However, last man Richardson proved to be of sterner stuff than the more credentialed batsman up the order. He combined with Hurst to put on 54 for the last wicket. He rode his luck, playing many balls just out of the hands of fielders in compiling 25. Hurst, who had made his way to 85 in a comfortable fashion, edged one of Nobles into the slips, where Darling took the catch to end the innings at 278. Howe finished with the best figures, taking four for 70, whilst Noble claimed three. There was little doubt that Trot would ask English to follow on, given they were 295 runs in arrears. Following the break for lunch, McLaren and Mason made their way onto the field for the second innings. McLaren picked off singles from Howe and Noble, although he survived two close catching our chances early. Mason was really struggling. With a score at 10, Mason tamely pushed a ball to Jones at mid-off off Noble, falling without scoring. This brought Ranji to the crease. Both batsmen adjusted well to their failures in the previous innings, with McLaren playing Howell almost exclusively off the back foot to cover for late movement. They both found gaps in the field with regularity, scoring in twos and threes with the occasional four. When Ranji had reached 19, he hit a ball high towards Logon, where Darling dropped a simple chance, to the disappointment of the crowd. The 50 came up soon after, as the runs continued to come fluidly. Trumbull and McLeod were tried at the bowling crease, but both posed little threat, as English moved to the tee break only one down, with a score on 91. Both batsmen had made their way to the 40s. After tea, Jones, who had suffered a minor leg injury in the first innings, was still unable to bowl. Trot bowled himself, but his slow leg breaks were picked off easily by the two batsmen. 
McLaren won the race to 50 by a few minutes, with Ranji bringing up his with an off-drive to the boundary. The team score went past 100, and the skills of both batsmen were on full display, with both demonstrating excellent strokes all around the wicket. The Australians were somewhat able to restrict the scoring for periods, but the batsmen would find a way to relieve the pressure with a boundary, whether it was a cut for four by Ranji or an on-drive to the boundary by McLaren. The score moved on to 150, with both batsmen in the 70s, as the end of the day was within sight. Finally, with only 30 minutes of play left, Ranji missed hit a ball high from a cloud into the offside. Half a dozen fielders converged, but Trumbull emerged with the catch, dismissing the Indian Prince for 77. With a 142-run partnership now broken, the Australians began to put the press on the new batsman Hayward. Howe bowled seven maiden overs in a row to the new batsman. He could only manage a single at the other end in that time, and eventually punched the ball back to McLeod, who took a good catch low down. Weir keeper Stora came in at number five and took six off his first two balls from McLeod, was then out off the third, caught at slip. Drew saw the rest of the day out with McLaren, who ended on 70, but the English had dropped from 1 for 152 to 4 for 161 in the half an hour prior to the end of the day, still 134 short of making the Australians bat again. Drews began the fifth day with a boundary off Howe. The scoring moved quickly at the beginning of play, moving past 200 with rapidity, giving the English hope that they could avoid an innings loss. McLaren made his way into the 90s with a pull shot for four. Trot then switched on the wicket-takers from the previous day, Noble and McLeod. This brought success as Noble managed to bowl Drew softly pads for 27, having shared a 52-run partnership with McLaren. Hurst was next in, and when an early lunch was taken, McLaren had moved to within one run of his century. After the break, Jones was attempted for one over, but failed to get any pace up in his bowling and was quickly removed. McLaren got the single he needed for his century without fuss, having taken almost five hours to reach this point. Soon afterwards, McLeod trapped Hurst LBW for six, leaving the English at 6 to 235. Sutter joined McLaren, who started to speed up following his milestone, sweeping McLeod and driving Noble for boundaries in consecutive overs. Stoddart settled into defence, moving his score on through edges and glances. The two saw the score pass 250 and approaching a position where Australia would have to bat a game. McLaren then hit Noble for four over points head, was out next ball, edging behind to Kelly. His 124 had included 10 boundaries and taken five and a quarter hours. Briggs replaced him in Stonewall, not even trying to score. Stoddart tried to lift his scoring rate, finding a boundary off McLeod, but was then out next ball, hitting high to Jones, who initially misjudged the chance, but ended up taking it cleanly. This gave McLeod his fifth wicket of the innings, the first time he had done so in test matches. Now at 8 for 278, the end came quickly. Hearn smashed one boundary off Noble, was out caught and bowled next ball, whilst Richardson was out for a duck in Noble's next over, ending the English innings on 282, with Briggs not out on zero despite batting for half an hour. The Australians completed a second successive innings victory, with Noble joining McLeod in completing a five-wicket haul. They now had a 2-1 lead in the series, with two tests to go. There was some disgruntlement from the English following this test, particularly regarding the barracking Ranji received from members of the crowd, ostensibly due to disparaging comments he had made about the state of the ground during the match against South Australia at the beginning of the tour. Nevertheless, Stoddart spoke well and apologised for their poor showing in this match, hoping to make up for it in the next test, starting at the end of January at the MCG. The Australians didn't change a winning combination, whilst the English brought back Wainwright to replace Hurst. Once again, the Australians won the toss. Trot hadn't even bothered to look at the pitch before deciding to bat, expecting another excellent batting track. McLeod took the first ball from Richardson. This ball bounced considerably higher than expected, suggesting the pitch had some demons in it. McLeod managed to get a single off the final ball of the over. Hearn bowled from the other end, and with the last ball of his first over, had McLeod playing onto his stumps for one. Hill came in at number three, joining Darling, who was yet to face a ball. The two batted cautiously, although Darling did find the boundary twice, taking the score into the 20s. 
Darling, who had made his way to 12, attempted to hit Richardson through the seventh strong offside field, but could only steer the ball to Gully, where Hearn took the catch. Gregory was next in and immediately was bowled by a searing Yorker from Richardson off the first ball he faced. Iredell survived the hat-trick ball, was then out in the next over for a duck, caught behind off Hearn. The Australians were now 4 for 26. This soon became 5 for 32, as Noble could only manage 4 before being caught and bowled by Hearn. Captain Trott came in to help clean up the mess caused by his decision to bat. He joined Hill, who had watched the carnage from the other end. Indecision with the running almost caused the departure of Hill, but was saved by a generous decision from the umpire. Despite this close shave, Hill was the only batsman who looked comfortable on the pitch. He managed to take his score on to 32 at lunch, whilst Trott had struggled his way to 7, the Australians going to the break at 5 for 58. Hearn and Richardson all rested up from lunch, recommenced the attack, and were immediately rewarded as Hearn had Trott edging behind without adding to his score, although keeper took three attempts at completing the catch. The Australians were now in dire straits at 6-58. However, the pitch was improving as Trumbull joined Hill. Hill continued to make things look easy, moving into the 40s with threes off each bowler, and was taking every opportunity to score through the league side, which had more space available than the off due to the field placements. Richardson cranked up the pace, but Hill handled him well, turning into fine leg for a boundary to bring up his 50. Trumbull was more cautious and was lucky to survive a caught-behind chance, despite the edge, the belated appeal from the wicketkeeper causing the umpire to give it not out. He responded by hitting the next ball for four. Briggs was brought on for Richardson, and Trumbull responded by hitting him to the square leg boundary, bringing up the team 100. Hill continued to grow his score and moved into the 70s when a wild throw gave him four overthrows. He went particularly hard at Hearn, taking 23 runs off four overs leading to him being replaced by Hayward. This didn't slow him down, moving through the 90s within a single over, with the century coming up with an on-drive. This was his first in tests after a couple of close misses, and he had dominated the Australian score, with only 142 on the board when the milestone was reached. The score moved on to 151 shortly after when T was taken, with Hill on 107 and Trumbull on 20. After T, Stoddart tried his different bowling options, including himself, with little success. Trumbull continued to bat stoically, leaving Hill to do the bulk of the scoring. Richardson was again tried, but by this stage, his bowling lacked menace and both batsmen took him for runs. Thought weather was affecting the fielding side, with sloppy efforts and slow movement between overs preventing them from building pressure. Wicketkeeper Stora was tried, but Hill hit a first ball full toss for a boundary, bringing up the team 200. Trumbull also started to become more lively, cutting a ball for four, but got carried away attempting to hit Stora over long on. His shot fell short and Mason took a fine catch inches off the ground. Trumbull's 46 had taken two and a half hours and had rescued the Australian innings with a 165-run partnership with Hill. Newman Kelly joined the set batsman, who had made his way to 152. The English couldn't force another breakthrough for the remainder of the day, whilst the two batsmen continued to build the Australian total with consistent boundary hits. The day ended with the Australians on 7 for 275. Hill had made his way to 182 not out, an outstanding knock in the face of adversity. The crowd flocked around him as he exited the field, with many in Melbourne now getting an understanding as to why he was so highly rated. Richardson's first ball of the second day was a beamer that nearly took out Kelly. Hill started with a couple of Hearn, but was out soon after, having only added six to his overnight score, edging a ball to Stoddart. The whole English team applauded him as he left the field, having made 188 in just over five hours batting with 21 boundaries. It was the third highest test score to that time, just behind the double centuries made by Murdoch and Gregory. Jones joined Kelly at 8 for 283. The two batsmen took the score past 300 before Kelly was caught behind off Briggs' first ball of the day for 32. The final wicket partnership of Howell and Jones put on a further 20 runs before Jones became Hearn's sixth victim, ending the innings on 323. This was an excellent recovery from 6 for 58, with the final four wickets putting on 265 runs. 
earned six wickets that had cost him 98 runs, whilst Richardson claimed two, but went for over 100. After the first morning, the pitch had had few demons. As such, it was expected that the English would make a strong showing with the bat. So that changed the order, sending Wainwright in to open with McLaren. McLaren survived a chance when he was dropped off the bowling of Trot when he was only on two. The batsman took the score on to 14 before Howe bowled what the umpire's Philip said was as good a ball as he'd ever seen bowled, which came back in from six inches outside off stump to clip the bales, dismissing McLaren for eight. Lunch was then taken. After lunch, Ranji came out at number three, but almost immediately lost his partner as Wainwright was caught just off the ground at point from the bowling of Trot. Hayward joined with Ranji and the two started to build a partnership. Ranji was looking good with two falls in an over off Howe, whilst Hayward found the boundary against Trot. With some more enterprising batting, the two took the score past 50, with both batsmen looking set in their 20s. At this point, there was a double bowling change, with Noble and Trumbull replacing the openers. Ranji late cut Trumbull for two, but was then caught the slips trying to repeat the shot. He departed for 24 with a score on 60. Without addition to the score, Hayward drove a hard ball off Noble to Gregory mid-off, which a fielder took low down. Storer soon after departed for two, padding a simple chance back to Trumbull. This left the English at 5 for 67, still 256 runs behind. Mason joined Druce and the two started to rebuild. They took runs easily off Noble, leading to him being replaced by Jones. The pace troubled Mason, but he was lucky that his miscued shots landed in open space. The two took the score past 100 before Jones trapped Druce LBW for 24. Stoddart came to the crease, and despite a close run-out chance that Mason just survived, they managed to make it to T without further loss at 6 for 114. Stoddart started after T with a boundary off Jones, but was then caught at third man off the same bowler for 17. Newman Briggs took a boundary off his first ball and looked busy, also driving Trumbull to the cover fence. Mason edged Jones to four, taking him to the top scorer for the innings, but was then out for 30 when Jones knocked his off stump out of the ground. Hearn was then caught three balls later in the same over for a duck. Richardson joined Briggs at nine for 148. The two pushed towards avoiding the compulsory follow-on of a 120-run deficit something the Australians wouldn't have minded given the oppressive conditions. They made it to 178 before a wild swing by Richardson off Trumbull saw him clean bowl for 20. Jones had been the pick of the Australian bowlers with 4 for 56, whilst Trot and Trumbull both claimed two. With the English 149 runs behind, the follow-on came into force. With only 20 minutes of play left, Briggs, who had been not out 21 in the previous innings, opened with Wainwright. Wainwright could only manage two before driving a catch to McLeod off Jones. Bad light ended the play then, with the English on one for seven. Another hot day, this time with smoke from bushfires occurring in country Victoria wafting across the ground, greeted the players for day three. McLaren joined Briggs and was nearly out of the first over when he edged Jones behind, but Kelly failed to complete the catch low down. This let off allowed the two batsmen to compose a partnership, taking advantage of some loose bowling from Trot. McLaren was dropped again off Jones with a score on 30, as Trumbull spilled a simple chance. He took advantage by hitting two consecutive boundaries off the same bowler. With the score having reached 50, Howe was tried, and this brought the wicket with Briggs failing to take advantage of a long hop, hitting it straight into Darling's hands. Briggs had made 23, and she had a 56-run partnership with McLaren. Ranji came in at four, and the two best English batsmen went to work. McLaren went into the 40s with a shot through square leg, whilst Ranji looked comfortable handling the pace of Jones. Having reached 45, McLaren looked to turn Trumbull to the onside, but mistimed the shot and was caught by Iredale at square leg. Hayward came in and took the score through to three for 98 at lunch, with Ranji having made 20. After lunch, the smoke rolled in thicker than had been all match. The bowlers toiled well, though, making scoring difficult. Ranji took the score past 100 with the drive to long on and followed up with a boundary off Trumbull, but other than that looked to wear the bowlers out in difficult conditions. Hayward had made it to nine in 50 minutes of batting, whereupon he was nearly caught at third man, but the ball fell short of a diving hill.
Ranji's 50 came up soon after. Within this too short of erasing the deficit though, Ranji was bowled by Noble for 55, beaten by a well-flighted ball. Stoddart joined Hayward, who took the English into the lead with a cut shot for three. Hayward didn't last much longer and was soon caught and bowled by Trumbull for 25, made in over an hour and a half of batting. Drews joined his captain hitting his first ball for four and helped to see the English through to T at four for 174. The score moved on to 192 following T before Drews was caught at point off trot. Mason joined his captain, who took the score past 200 with the boundary through cover, but soon after edged the ball back onto his stumps for 25 off Jones. At 7 for 211, Stora came to the crease and started with a three off his first ball. At the other end, Mason survived three close chances, including a simple catching opportunity off Jones, which Howell dropped. As such, the two were able to get the score into the 250s before Stump was drawn, with both batsmen having moved into the 20s. At 7 for 254, the English lead was now over 100 runs as the match headed into its fourth day. The fourth day was a lot cooler than the previous scorches, which was good for the Australians, who were tired after two continuous days in the field. The beginning of the day didn't go to plan, with Trumbull dropping Storer off Howe. The Australians' luck would soon turn, however, as both sets batsmen fell with a score on 259, with Howe bowling Mason for 26, and McLeod the next over having Storer caught at third man for the same score. The innings only lasted four runs more before Richardson became the final wicket, being caught at slip-off McLeod, ending the innings on 263. The wickets were shared, with Howe, Jones, Trumbull and McLeod all claiming two. This left the Australians with a target of 115 runs to win. The Australians opened with McLeod and Darling. Richardson had a right side strain and was unable to bowl, leading to Hearn and Briggs opening the bowling. Without their speedster, the English struggled to make inroads. Darling started with an all-run four off Briggs, whilst McLeod took seven off Hearn's first over. Darling then struck Hearn for three boundaries in an over, bringing up 30 in quick time. The bowlers continued with regular loose deliveries, allowing the batsmen to free their arms. It wasn't until the score reached 47 that there was a false stroke, with Hearn catching the edge of Darling's bat, only for the ball to run away for three. This led to a bowling change with Hayward coming on. He threw a tempted out wide to Darling, who couldn't resist the opportunity to cover drive, only to edge behind to the keeper, out for 29. He'll join McLeod with the score on 50, with lunch coming soon afterwards without further loss. Following lunch, Hill was trapped LBW for a duck from the bowling of Hayward. There was still a slim chance of the English at 2 for 56 as Gregory joined McLeod. After a period of slow scoring though, the batsmen began to find the gaps. McLeod hit one ball to square leg, was well saved on the boundary. However, the return throw was so wild, the batsmen ended up running six for the shot. McLeod's 50 came up shortly afterwards, made it an hour and a quarter. Stoddart tried many different bowlers, including Ranji, but they could only delay the inevitable at this point as with a shot by Gregory through the slips saw the winning runs hit. McLeod was undefeated on 64, whilst Gregory had contributed 21 to the successful chase. Thus, the Australians took an unbeatable 3-1 lead, their first series victory since Lord Sheffield's tour in 1891-92. The teams had almost a month before the final test commenced in Sydney at the end of February. In the meantime, the English faced New South Wales for the second time, losing the match that went for six days by 239 runs, featuring a second innings 171 from Gregory and 12 wickets for Noble. With the series gone, Stoddart determined to leave himself out of the English 11 for the test, with Hurst returning from injury, whilst McLaren again taking the captaincy. Meanwhile, the Australians also made one change, with Jack Worrell coming in for Iredale. Worrell was 37 at this stage, and had been focusing more on his Australian rules football prior to this season. He had, however, scored 417 runs for his club side in 1896, and followed up this Shield season with a century against New South Wales. Despite the series having been decided, a record 36,000 attended the first day of the test. McLaren was successful at the toss and chose to bat, opening with himself and Wainwright. Noble and Howe commenced for the Australians, 
Whilst McLaren was edgy earlier, the two batsmen scored consistently, bringing the total up to 40 before the bowlers were replaced with Trumbull and Jones. Wainwright enjoyed the pace of Jones, hitting him for boundaries in successive overs, whilst McLaren also found boundaries around the wicket. He would bring up his 50 just before lunch, with the English navigating the first session without loss, with 90 runs on the board. Following the break, Trot and Trumbull commenced the attack. The two batsmen brought up their 100 partnerships soon after, whilst McLaren moved into the 60s. On 65, he had a leading edge above the head of Hill, who ran back and took an amazing catch. His effort was unrewarded though, as a no ball had been called. Luckily for the Australians, McLaren was out in the next over, not having added to his score, playing a ball from Trot back onto his stumps. Ranchi joined Wainwright, who moved within one run of his own half-century before edging Trumbull to Hill at slip. Ranji made it a third wicket when he attempted to hit Trot over mid-off, only to be well caught by Gregory for two. The English had slipped from none for 111 to three for 119 in only a few overs. Hayward and Storer then combined. They batted slowly to turn the momentum and without providing a chance, moved the score past 150s. Feeling comfortable, Hayward started to open up more, finding the boundary multiple times before team was taken with a score of 3 for 174, with Hayward 36 and Storer 17. Following T, an edge from Hayward off Jones just went out of reach in slips. Hayward then glanced his next ball for four. The score moved on to 197 before Jones breached Hayward's defences, bowling him for 47. New batsman Drews nearly played his first ball onto his wicket, but survived, bringing up the 200 with a shot through the covers. Storer moved into the 40s with back-to-back late cuts off Jones, but was out in the same over when the Yorker disturbed his stumps. Hurst joined Drews with a score of 5 for 230. The most aggressive cricket of the day was played between here and stumps, with both batsmen finding the boundary frequently. Hurst hit numerous short balls from Trumbull to the boundary, whilst Drews also late cut Jones cleverly. The 300 came up right in the last over of the day, with both batsmen making it to 43 not out. Following the Sunday rest day, the second morning started with the English at 5 for 301, with another 20,000 crowding in for the play. Only seven runs were added before Jones struck, bowling Hurst for 44 with a fast Yorker. Next in Mason could only add seven himself before he was also dismissed, caught by Howlett slip off Jones. Briggs was nearly out first ball with the searing Yorker just missing his leg stump. He survived long enough to see Drews to his half century before Jones sent his leg stump cartwheeling for a duck, giving the South Australian speeds to his fifth wicket. Noble got in on the action by trapping Drews LBW for a well-made 64. The end came quickly as Jones disturbed his fifth set of stumps for the innings, bowling Richardson. The English had lost their last five wickets for only 34 runs, losing the advantage they worked hard for on the first day. Jones was outstanding, finishing with 6 for 82 off 26 overs, his first five-wicket haul in Test cricket. There was time for 10 minutes of play before lunch, the Australians, who opened McLeod and Darling, making 18 in that time. Following the break, the score doubled in the first 30 minutes of play before Darling became the first to fall, cutting Briggs to slip to be out for 14. Hill received a warm reception from the crowd, but could only manage eight before he was comprehensively bowled by Richardson. This brought Worrell in to join McLeod. Worrell just got his bat down on a fast Yorker first ball and appeared jumpy against the pace, edging multiple balls just past his leg stump. The pair eventually got the score past 50 as they saw off Richardson. McLeod moved into the 40s with an off-drive off Storer before slowly moving to his half-century right on the stroke of T. The two batsmen had put on a 50 partnership, taking the score to 99 at the break. Worrell was out shortly after the resumption, cutting Richardson high to Ranji's right at point, with the Indian Prince taking an excellent catch. Worrell was out for 26 without addition to the T score. Gregory joined McLeod, who took the score past 100 with an off drive for four. Gregory scored his runs quickly, peppering the point region with drives and cuts. He moved to 21 at a run a minute before he edged a rising ball from Richardson through to the keeper. Five runs later, McLeod's innings of 64 was concluded when he missed a full toss, giving Richardson his fourth wicket of the innings. Trot and Noble combined at 5 for 137, 
still 79 short of the follow-on target. The two batted confidently, handling the bowlers with ease as McLaren rotated them to find a breakthrough. Noble was saved when he made 22 by a poor return throw from Hayward, otherwise he would have been run out. At the end of the day, Richardson cramped up, so much so that he could only complete an over with slow bowling. The Australians reached the end of the day without further loss with a score of 5 for 184, with Noble 31 and Trot 14. The Australians still had 32 runs to make before they could avoid the follow-on as day 3 commenced. They reduced that total by 4 before Trot was caught at point off Hearn. Noble followed the next over, caught behind off Richardson, who completed his Pfeiffer. At 7 for 188, the thought of making the Australians bat again was within the English grasp, but Trumbull and Kelly combined for quick runs, taking the Australians past 200 and then the follow-on target of 215. Richardson finally got through Trumbull at 221, sending his leg sump cartwheeling. The last two wickets took the score on to 239 before the innings ended, with Kelly undefeated on 27. Richardson, who claimed the last two wickets, finished with the outstanding figures of 8 for 94, his best in test matches. The Australians had avoided the follow-on. The English were still in a strong position with a 96-run lead. That excellent position wavered with the first ball of the second innings, as McLaren was out caught by Darling off Jones at third slip. Ranji joined Wainwright, who cut Jones to four, whilst Ranji hooked the same bowler to the boundary. However, Noble struck, bowling Wainwright off his pads for six. Hayward joined Ranji, and the two took the score onto 30 before Jones trapped the Prince LBW for 12, although there was some dispute as to whether Bat was involved. Stora joined Hayward at three for 30. The two batted carefully, moving the score past 50 before Howe was brought in on place of Jones. He nearly had a wicket third ball, but the inside edge from Hayward ran past leg stump to the boundary. The two batsmen continued on until T, taking the score to 84, a lead of 180. The conditions were becoming duller, with the batsmen complaining about the light. The scoring slowed, with Trot only going for six runs in as many overs. They took the total onto 99 before Stora lifted Trumbull into the outfield, where Gregory took an excellent one-handed catch. Drews joined Hayward, and the two took the score past 100, before Hayward became the fifth victim, driving Trumbull to Worrell a cover, out for 43. Wicket Sam began to tumble with regularity, as Batson found it difficult to get settled. Drews and Hurst combined for a while, with Hurst launching Trumbull over the side screen for five, before he cut the ball straight to trot a point off Jones. Drews managed 18 before being caught by Howe, whilst Mason was also bowled, both falling victim to Trumbull. With a score at 8 for 148, Briggs hit out, finding the boundary with multiple cut shots before he was out right at stumps with Howe castling his leg stump for 29. This left the English at 9 for 172, a lead of 268 with only the final partnership left. The English could only add 6 to their total before Howe bowled Richardson, ending the innings on 178. Trumbull had the best figures with 4 for 37, whilst Jones added 3 to give him 9 for the match. The English left the Australians with 275 to win. Richardson showed that Chase would not be an easy one for the Australians, with a rising bumper that nearly collected McLeod's head on the way through to the keeper. At the other end, Darling started with a three-off Hearn before striking Richardson for consecutive boundaries. He tried for a third, but hit it in the air to Briggs. Briggs palmed the ball up in the air, but couldn't complete the catch on the second attempt. The English were soon after celebrating, though, as Hearn got one past the dour defences of McLeod, bowling him for four. Hill joined his fellow left-hander at the crease. He watched Darling twice hit consecutive boundaries to the offside, before he played across the line to one from Richardson to be bowled for two. The match was in a balance at two for 40, as Worrell joined Darling. Darling continued to attack in chasing the target. In one Richardson over, he hit four boundaries, bringing up his 50, although he also survived a close shout for LBW. Worrell followed the example set by his partner, sending Hearn to the fence twice. Darling survived a close catching opportunity with Hayward unable to make enough ground on a shot to the deep, allowing him to make his way to lunch on 68. With Worrell on 17, the Australians had already made their way to 2 for 92. Darling brought up the 100 soon after lunch with a boundary off a full toss from Richardson. 
He continued playing his shots with a series of fierce cuts to highlight, and he was soon into the 90s. He moved through the nervous 90s within an over, and with a single off the first ball of Briggs next, he reached his century, his third of the series. He had dominated the scoring to that point, with his trains on two for 129. He was in no mood for slowing down, taking 11 off a Briggs over, whilst Worrell also opened his shoulders, smacking two boundaries off Hurst. This striking saw the scoreboard ticking over in quick time, with 89 runs coming in the hour after lunch and reducing the required total to under 100. The only thing that slowed the boundaries was when a straight drive from Darling struck the umpire, Bannerman, in the shoulder, saving the English three runs. The 200 came up shortly after, with Darling's 150 not far behind. Worrell also reached his half-century with a big hit to the leg side boundary. Another hit went high into the leg side, where Ranji positioned himself, but failed to take the catch. Finally, when Worrell reached 62, he holed out, being caught by Hurst at mid-on off Hayward. He had shared a 197-run partnership with Darling and taken the Australians to 3 for 233, just requiring another 42 for victory, as T was taken. Gregory joined Darling after the break and started well, taking boundaries off Richardson and Mason and bringing the Australian total to 250. At this point, Darling's match-winning knock ended, slicing a ball from Richardson to third man where the catch was taken. He had finished on 160, made in just under three hours and containing 30 boundaries. His innings had put the result beyond doubt as Noble joined Gregory. Noble wasted little time, hitting three boundaries, including two through the offside of Richardson. Gregory then leg lands to four, whilst the winning runs were collected by Noble, placing Richardson through the offside. The Australians completed a six-wicket victory, ending the series with an emphatic 4-1 scoreline, despite having lost the first test. Richardson's two wickets had given him 10 for the match, but he had gone for over 200 runs in claiming them. The Australians' victory was built upon a greater depth in both batting and bowling across the series. Darling was the standout, scoring over 500 runs at 67, and becoming the first player to score three centuries in the series. He was well supported, with Hill and McLeod both averaging over 50, whilst Ardale and Gregory also provided consistent runs. This compared with the English, who were reliant on McLaren and Ranty, who both averaged over 50, but lacked support other than Hayward, who averaged 37. The bowling was similar. The Australians had a variety of options they could turn to. Jones was the leader with 22 wickets, Trumbull and Noble both had 19, whilst McLeod, Howe and Trott all contributed well. Meanwhile, the English duo of Richardson and Hearn both claimed over 20 wickets, but other than Briggs with 9, no other bowler provided penetration, with Hurst particularly considered a disappointment. Even then, Richardson was not the same bowler he'd been on the previous tour, with his 22 wickets costing 35 runs apiece, compared to the 32 at 26 he'd taken previously. The English ended their tour with a win against Victoria, followed by a draw with South Australia in the final match of the summer. Despite dealing with a defeat in the tests, personal tragedy and illness, Stoddart did have a bright spot, winning a £1,500 lottery. Meanwhile, Victoria won the Sheffield Shield for the third time, with victory over South Australia in February being the decisive result. Tua was an interesting one regarding the treatment of Ranjit Sinji. Despite the initial issue with him getting into the country, he was generally considered a popular figure by the general public and key figures in Australian cricket. Whilst he was in Australia, he had been writing articles for a local magazine and did roll up some members of the community with his comments on Ernie Jones' action and the behaviour of some members in the crowd, with some of the barracking in Ranji's view being merciless, uncomplimentary and insulting. This series would mark the final one for the great English speedster Richardson. He'd gone against advice in touring Australia, with many fearing he would be worn out after a long county season. He was also drinking in increasing amounts, putting on weight and losing fitness. This meant he was never the same threat again and his performances declined. Although he would continue in county cricket until 1904, he was never considered for tests again. He suffered a fatal heart attack in 1912, dying at the age of 41. Despite a short test career of only 14 tests, where he took 88 wickets, his impact was so great that he was selected as one of the six giants of the Winston century to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Almanac. 
Stoddart, who had only managed two tests on the tour, also ended his test career this season. He had a 10-year career, making nearly 1,000 runs at an average of 35, and made three tours to Australia, two as captain. He was also a major force in rugby union and captained the first English tour of Australia in 1888, jointly organised with Arthur Shrewsbury and Alfred Shaw, where they also played matches of Australian rules football. Following his cricket career, his mental health declined and he would commit suicide at the age of 52. The series also marked the final appearance of Harry Trott. Widely considered the best Australian captain since Billy Murdoch, Trott had been a popular leader of men and had successfully regained the Ashes, becoming one of the most recognised people in Australia. His employer, the post office, gave him as much leave as he wanted for cricket, declaring him a national institution. However, his performances in this series have been poor, compounded by failing eyesight. Furthermore, in late 1898, he suffered from a severe mental illness, causing him to miss selection in the 1899 Tour of England. He returned to cricket in 1900, but mostly played for his club side. He would live on until 1917, being a big advocate for player power, before dying of Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 51. His impact on the direction of Australian cricket was profound, with Hugh Trumbull considering the best captain he had played under. His influence would be greatly felt as the next three captains of Australia, Darling, Noble and Hill, all came of age under his leadership. The performance of the Australians was so great as to take attention away from the coming Federation of Australia, which was only three years away. Indeed, it was the widespread support of the Australian team that helped in generating an Australian, rather than a colonial, identity. Their efforts in bringing together one group was reflected through the detentions beginning to pull apart the recently established Australian Cricket Council, with player power starting to push back as the Australians prepared for the final tour of the 19th century, a series that would see the introduction to the world stage of one of the greatest players of all time. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.